Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio Christmas Edition. <laughs> welcome to the program. I'm one half of your host, Yael Osowski, broadcasting to you from the heart of the Austrian Republic here in Vienna. And I'm joined on the other side by David Clement, who's out there in Toronto, Ontario. David, how goes it, good man? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. A very Merry Christmas um, to all of those who are celebrating um, and listening to us. Um, if you're listening to us on the radio on Saga 960 right now, you are probably driving to some sort of family get-together. Um, hopefully, you are compliant um, with whatever these new strange rules are. Uh, I know everyone's kind of confused about what we can and can't do, but um, yeah, Merry Christmas to all of our listeners and to everyone who is celebrating out there. And we keep it going. We keep on with Consumer Choice Radio. You guys can always go to our website, consumerchoiceradio.com. If you're listening on the radio, you can subscribe to the podcast version and listen at any time. Or if you are subscribed, thank you so much. You can also try out a podcasting 2.0 compliant app and send us some satoshis if you like the content that you're getting over there on newpodcastapps.com. You can find a couple of those. So, David, it is uh, Christmas uh, we've got some interesting traditions. We've got some great, beautiful songs. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go ahead and play uh, something that we put together uh, over on the Consumer Choice Center side, and that is the Twas a Night Before Christmas Consumer Choice Edition. <laughs> Perfect. All right. All right. So let's uh, play this for the audience. Twas the night before Christmas when all through the Airbnb, not a creature was stirring on the smart TV. The stockings were hung by the fireplace with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were finishing their long Twitter threads, while their Spotify wrapped played in their heads, and Mama in her PJs and I ready for a nap had just settled down for a nice ice-cold nightcap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I paused Amazon Prime to see what was the matter. Away to the window, like I was out of my mind, I told Siri to open the curtains and throw up the blinds. Mooncoin was high on my new iPhone Pro, and the streetlights illuminated the objects below. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but an emissionless sleigh with eight tiny reindeer? With a little old driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than 5G, his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted, and he called them by name. Now Dasher, no Dancer, no Prancer, no Vixen, on Comet and Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen. To the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As an Uber driver does as they begin their route, when you meet an obstacle, you troubleshoot. So up to the housetop, the coursers they flew, with a sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too. And then, in a twinkling, I heard on the roof the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew my hand and rose from my rest, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a negative PCR test. He was all dressed in fur from his head to his foot. His clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. With a bag full of toys, he must have been sore, so I gave him some CBD cream freshly bought from the store. His eyes, how they twinkled. He was back as St. Nick. His cheeks were like roses. My treat did the trick. 
His cute little smile was drawn up like a bow. Consumer choice matters in this house, which he did now know. When suddenly he vaped and cast up a cloud, he stared and he asked, Is this not allowed? I said, Santa, of course. Switching is the right choice. He smiled, bowed, and began to rejoice. He was chubby as plump, a tale as old as time. But what was that flavor? Was it orange or key lime? A wink in his eye and a nod to my class. I knew then I could sit back down on my ass. He put down his vape and he went straight to work. And he filled all the stockings. Then he turned with a jerk. And laying his finger aside of his nose, with one more vape up the chimney, he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team, to give a talk. And away he flew upwards, like Nancy Pelosi's stocks. But I heard him exclaim, as he drove out of sight, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. And that's it. Night Before Christmas, Consumer Choice Edition. <laughs> yeah, narrated by someone who sounded very good behind the mic. I don't know who that was. Very well sure done. did. He could do some theater training, but that's all cool. Yeah, yeah. But uh, not bad. Yeah, I not figured bad. we'd we'd offer a little gift here uh, for the holidays. Um, I know we've got a couple of traditions that we're all having to comb through, thumb through, and understand. Mm-hmm. And I figured um, that's a nice little Anglo-Saxon tradition um, for for people to get through. So, consumer choice edition. It is. It is. Yeah, very very good. Um, one thing I've been digging into. So, one of my favorite Christmas movies is The Muppets Christmas Carol. The story about Ebenezer Scrooge, which is actually done really well, um, and the music in it is great. And then I started digging into like the history of A Christmas Carol, written by Charles Dickens, and I, most people give him credit for actually like creating the familial trend uh, tradition of Christmas um, beyond obviously the religious significance for Christians, but the the goodwill to all men, big dinner, um, drink and food and celebration and get-togethers. And he apparently, according to people who study this stuff, is uh, deemed the man who invented Christmas, which Those is Those are the quite... Christmasologists who've yes. put this forward. Yeah, yeah. So I never knew that, but I uh, I dug into some of that over the last couple nights. That's interesting. I guess you could say the same for, you know, Shakespeare and various traditions and things. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're not the inventors, but they're kind of the cementers of it. Yes. Um, So maybe it's been observed for some time, and he's actually just put it into the record, kind of. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think based on my understanding, Christmas traditions were starting to wane um, in in England at the time. and he was trying, he like basically re-sparked the, no, this is a time to be generous, to help people, to open your doors, to um, to eat, to be merry, to all of those things that, at least in North America, are very commonplace. Um, I do have a quiz question for you, though, Yael. Hit me. Who invented, who or what invented the modern image of Santa? The big guy in the red and white with the hat. Well, my first guess was going to be Pepsi, but uh, oh, oof. <laughs> everyone in Atlanta is cringing right now. The whole scene. I know Coca Cola. Yeah, yeah. Coke, most people don't know that. Like, the, I think the first depiction of the Santa we know today was actually 
um, done by Coca-Cola. So another weird moment in time where um, you don't necessarily realize the origins of, of a particular image or story. So let's go, let's go even further back, because we hear about St. Nick, and it's, it's actually fairly confusing where I am in Catholic Austria, uh, because we do have a St. Nicholas that is you know, big in the culture, and there's a, Nicol- a St. Nicholas Day, uh, which is December 6th, in which the St. Nicholas will come and he'll leave you oranges and chocolates in your shoes that you've left outside of your door. And he also traditionally wore a red robe and uh, would be very merry. And um, actually, the sort of circumstance that he's most well-known for is that there were uh, two prostitutes who were being forced into prostitutes at the time. This is in uh, a, a Greek part of Turkey at the time. And uh, basically threw them uh, two pieces of gold. And those pieces of gold allowed them to break free from prostitution. And oh, it was okay. sort of seen as this charitable act. And then the St. Nicholas became known for all these various charitable acts across the entire, uh, I guess then it was, you know, whatever the Turkish Empire was, Constantinople and the rest. Uh, And that sort of tradition carried on in the Catholic religion, and that kind of created this idea of the Saint Nick, which through many different levels was bastardized and Germanicized and Anglicized (laughs) and in a way uh, laundered to give us this modern... uh, uh, Tim Allen version of Santa Claus. Interesting, interesting. Well, did you know that? Uh, yeah, so that the Santa Claus was actually filmed uh, very, not too far from my house. It was filmed in Oakville. I actually walk by that house probably every year around this time. The door is still the same color. You can look at the spot where where uh, where Scott Calvin became Santa Claus. It's uh, it's quite magical. Yeah, that's that's probably one of my favorite Christmas movies. <laughs> it is pretty uh, good. It is pretty you, good. You did ask about traditions before, and actually in Austria, there is no Santa Claus. So there is the Saint Nick, um, and that is December 6th. Uh, but actually, the person who brings you the gifts, David, is the baby Jesus. Oh, interesting. The Kiskind, it's called. I didn't know that. How the tradition works, and I'm still working through this because now I have children, the Christmas tree... You get it in December, but it does not go up until the 24th, the evening of the 24th. Oh. And it goes up, and it is decorated by the Kiskind, by the baby Jesus, while you're out at church. Interesting. Usually it's the grandparents or, you know, someone else that will decorate it. And then you come home on the evening of the 24th, and all the gifts are laid out, and as soon as you come home, the bell rings... So you know the Kiskind was there, you know the baby Jesus was there, but you just missed the baby Jesus. Interesting. I did not know that. That's a very cool story. Yeah, and I think that's in most Catholic parts of the German-speaking world. Okay. Uh, The entire idea of Father Christmas, Mm -hmm. uh, sort of Santa Claus, they have that a bit more in Protestant Germany. Uh, But, you know, sometimes it's Father Christmas, or they say the Weihnachtsman, so it's the Christmas man. (laughs) Which is very funny. <laughs> very literal. Um, yeah. Yeah, very very literal as the Germanic language is. So, yeah, that's the kind of tradition. And, um, you know, the 25th is technically here in these parts the day after Christmas. Um, so the real celebration is on the 24th. So in my house, it's a bit mixed up. We do the stockings. So we get the kisskin that comes by. But then Santa Claus, uh, he makes the journey all the way into our apartment just to fill those stockings. 
So that's nice. a happy compromise. Very fun. Very fun. Uh, yeah, it's always, it's always yeah. interesting to hear other um, cultural traditions in regards to Christmas because we're very much stuck in our own bubble. And you kind of blindly <laughs> expect that, well, well, everybody does turkey and stuffing and mashed potatoes and gravy and all that jazz and a family dinner. But there's there are a lot of and other And that's not even talking about the... Uh... It's not even talking about the Orthodox Christians, which have their Christmas, like, on mm-hmm. January 7th or something. So they're even, like, way later. You know, you're wishing them a Merry Christmas and stuff, and they're just sitting at home in their cold apartment. <laughs> they're like, not yet. They'll take the day off, though. <laughs> no, 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 no. That no. just makes me think of the no, Scrooge, and, the Scrooge um, line. December 25th, just another day to pick a man's pocket for a paid day off. <laughs> <laughs> that is golden yeah uh, yeah so i know there's going to be a lot of christmas cheer while listening to this episode and uh we do have an interview that david has lined up for us mm-hmm. uh, to play with you uh actually two of them uh, two great have, david wants yeah. to go ahead and give it a preview uh, it's good it's good to uh to kind of front load those yep and uh yeah go ahead yeah, so we have Joseph Anati from the Center for Truth and Science, great organization who essentially is looking to um, to streamline the research on some of these hot chemical and um, agricultural topics, um, which would be very useful once their research is published in regards to tort reform and how this is used in lawsuits and how some of this information can be digested by the media. Um, and then we were joined by Patrick Brown, the mayor of Brampton, uh, who um, has launched um, essentially a funding call to help fund the challenge of Quebec's Bill 21, which is their bill that prohibits um, from certain public professions folks from wearing any religious symbols. And this kind of came to the forefront uh, in response to a woman who was fired uh, from her teaching position because she wore a hijab. Um, so it's, uh, two, two great conversations, two wildly different topics. Um, but very excited to have them on the show, um, to talk about those issues. Perfect, David. Yeah. Look forward to that. You guys, uh, continue tuning in here to Consumer Choice Radio and, uh, Merry Christmas to you and your families. Merry Christmas to you, David. Merry Christmas to you, Yael. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, coming to you on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker FM. Uh, we are joined this week uh, by our next guest. I'm very excited uh, to introduce him. He is he, he is the president and uh, the CEO of the Center for Truth and Science. Welcome to the program, Joseph Anadi. Thank you very much. Great to be with you. Perfect. Thank you. Well, uh, I mean, I'm I'm relatively new in regards to familiarity with your organization, but right off the bat, I was like, wow, well, that's a very serious name for an organization. So what is it that the center does? Uh, and then we can dive into maybe some of the, um, the research areas that you guys have focused on and some of the big issues that you've seen uh, lately. Yeah, we are a very new organization. We've only been around, we've been around less than two years. Uh, and the first year was the first year of COVID. So that was kind of a, 
uh, uh, building year, forming a board and whatnot. And, mm -hmm. uh, what we are is truth seekers. Uh, we seek scientific truths um, on issues uh, at the heart of regulatory and legal debates. Um, what we term the intersection of science, justice, and the economy. Okay. Uh, we are trying to find the facts, and uh, we, we we don't have a, a stake in the in the political outcome of it. Mm -hmm. uh, our only stake is in uh, finding the truth, and if we can find it and convey that information in a compelling way to the public policymakers and the judges and juries and litigators who are making these profoundly important decisions, um, then we think we can, we can uh, help, reach, help them reach better decisions um, that are fair to all and based on validated science. And this may be a bit of a softball question, but I can only assume that part of the reason for creating the center was um, you were maybe seeing some, some half-truths or some mistruths creep its way into the regulatory process just well, walk our listeners yeah. through what the inception of, of of the center is in terms of why someone and an organization like yourself is necessary in the u.s um discussion well what we found is there that a lot of regulatory decisions and a lot of legal decisions are based on let's say agenda-driven science okay not necessarily the full and complete scientific research on any given topic, but the, the parts that make the best case, make the best emotional narrative. And whether that's to back up a political ideology or uh, the, the strategy of a, of a plaintiff in a, a legal case. Um, so we wanted to, to say, let's find a way to get the, you know, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth out there so that decisions can be based on the full facts. You know, if you pardon a very bad analogy, a Joe mm -hmm. Friday, just the facts, ma'am, kind of analogy. Yep. Uh, rather than uh, my science or your science, we're trying to get the science. Yes. Okay. Very needed. Very needed. I've seen, uh, anecdotally, we've seen this creep in um, in some, some major U.S. court cases, which we've covered on the program, and our, my colleague Yael is far more astute um in in what's going on there but um walk us through maybe a handful of some of the big issues that you've seen or that you focused research on that that you felt you needed to have the center weigh in on to to get to the truth and to um parse some of that partisanship and, and things like that sure so we um as I said, our mission is to study those issues at the intersection of science, justice, and the economy. So the first thing our board did was search for those issues. What are the what are those issues that are right there right now? And uh, we commissioned, we funded uh, four uh, systematic reviews, which is a, a review of the existing research on a topic, not original research, but existing mm -hmm. research on four issues. Um, they are glyphosate, which is mm -hmm. the active ingredient in Roundup which is in the heart of uh, yep. the heat of many uh, uh, legal battles. Yep. Um, PFAS, PFAS compounds, mm -hmm. uh, which are in a heated regulatory dispute and could be the next mass tort coming down the line. Yep. Um, ethylene oxide, um, 
which took on even more compelling uh, reasons to to exist actually and for use because it's used as a, a, a sterilization sterilization uh, chemical for yep. medical devices and in the age of COVID we need this desperately and then um, talc uh, which is you know the active uh, talcum powder. Uh, Johnson and Johnson is the subject of many, many lawsuits saying that their baby powder causes uh, cancer. Um, so we decided that there's a lot of misinformation, disinformation, half information on all those issues. Let's fund studies on those issues. So what we did was we created uh, what we call uh, what scientific community calls a request for proposal. We wanted to do studies on these issues, mm -hmm. the existing research. We didn't have a compelling uh, uh, hypothesis. We didn't have a, an outcome. We wanted to know how good the research is on these topics. Scientists submitted proposals to us. We submitted those proposals to a panel of independent reviewers who yep. rated each uh, uh, proposal and came back to us with, with recommendations and ratings for which scientists could perform the best uh, research on it. We awarded grants to those scientists They've done the research, now we are waiting. I've seen the preliminary results of the research. We're waiting for that their research papers to be published in a respected peer-reviewed scientific journal because we wanna make sure we follow all the steps of good science yep. before we start touting the results. Um, so when those uh, results get accepted by a magazine, uh, by a scientific journal, which we hope will be in the next few days or weeks, then we will begin uh, promoting the, uh, the results of them uh, to the broader scientific, legal, public policy community. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I, I think, uh, and I, I, I'm not, I, I'm sure that what you guys do will, will definitely or should have an impact in regards to how the media covers some of these issues. But when I hear you say glyphosate, immediately I, my ears perk up to, um, headlines that were all across North America that said something like Cheerios contains cancer-causing pesticide, and there was a bit of a panic around it. And then we, as a consumer organization, did some digging, and I was like, "Wait a second, what is okay? So, what are the thresholds? Does it actually?" And then we, we did some digging, and and it, it turned out you'd have to eat like something like your body weight of Cheerios a day for 30, 30 years in order to cross any serious threshold where it would be damaging to your health. Um, but I assume that you guys probably on, on, on the issue areas where you do your RFPs and are looking for um, kind of that summary review that those four key areas are just rife with with bad headlines i'm not sure you you cover yeah much i mean more so many so many of them come right out of the um of the mass tort playbook right mm -hmm. find find some scientist or some scientific study that casts doubt on whether this this is a, a hazard maybe raises questions about exposure to being a hazard um you know, start writing things out there and with your allies and uh, certain communities that, you know, scare the bejesus out of folks. Of course. Um, uh, creating a market for a potential uh, a high volume of plaintiffs. Um, find a few sympathetic ones that you want to put in front of a jury, win a case or two, and then go to the company and say, hey, you can keep defending this for the rest of your life. 
um, and and ruining your reputation, or you can settle this. Yeah, um, and it's a it's a classic science versus settled settled debate, and and we'd like to uh, maybe accelerate that process so that we can get the science out there first, um, and these cases can be judged um, uh, on the science. If a judge, if we can help a judge become educated, because judges are the the gateway to what evidence gets entered into their courtroom. If a judge is is in a better position to evaluate the quality of the scientific evidence, um, and most judges aren't scientists, right? So there's some education there. If we can foster that, um, that, that increased education, we think we can potentially reduce the amount of frivolous lawsuits and get the ones in court decided on the scientific validated scientific evidence not emotional narratives yeah yeah i mean that's fantastic just because i think of how much time and for the most part i would say that this is this is more a u.s phenomenon but just the amount of time and resources that would get dumped into i mean you look at talc some of the how that was originally adjudicated and then if if i'm remembering correctly uh, upwards of a month or two ago um, basically reversed. And it, it just struck me as there must be a lot of um, just a lot of gray area where a judge in a trial, who understandably so, does not have the scientific training to parse through all of these reports. And then they're relying on expert witnesses. And in many instances, <laughs> uh, we've we had Jerry Buting from Making a Murderer um, on the show previously, and he has very strong opinions over who gets called into uh, to testify as a expert witness and on what and, and what is actually scientifically valid and what isn't. And so this this sounds like the type of project that will um, potentially help um, both. It, it will help streamline things. It'll help the criminal justice system deal with issues where it is actually needed. Um, where there are problems, uh, and then maybe parse through some of the instances where things are a little frivolous. Um, my my follow-up question for you on this is the difference between hazard and risk. So this is something we've talked about quite frequently because a lot of people really don't know, and it goes back to that headline uh, in regards to Cheerios, um, like whether a hazard exists or not, uh, and then what exposure turns that into a risk for consumers. Do you see that as being a real focal point or a, a problematic area in regards to how we, whether it be politically or judicially, discuss some of these issues is failing to understand that something can be a hazard and yet the exposure is still so low that it is not a risk? Absolutely. Um, I spent decades in the insurance industry, so I know a little bit about risk analysis and, and risk mitigation and risk transfer and all those issues. I mean, everything we do is hazardous to some extent. Driving is hazardous. Yeah, of course. Um, but but we've you know we've come up with ways to manage the risks of driving to to make the the, the risk of loss reduce it as much as possible and make it as acceptable as possible. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what you mentioned before about the Cheerios, there's the famous, you know, spinach example. There's a, there's a, a group that publishes 
the dirty dozen every year of, of, of uh, uh, fresh produce. And spinach is always one of them because it says it has, you know, pesticide residue on the leaves. Well, you know, studies were done. You would have to eat, you know, literally tons of spinach to get to the level of pesticides uh, that would harm you. And well before you ever reached that, you would die of iron poisoning, which is what you're <laughs> eating the spinach for in the first place, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, we we had a funny one with alcohol because that was another one with beer, um, and the the whatever the pesticide that was used on on the grains, and it was like in order to reach a threshold where this would be damaging to your human health, I think you need like two thousand pints a day. And it's yes. like the calories so, and the alcohol would kill you first. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So there's the, you you've got to do a risk analysis and a cost benefit analysis on all these to determine what's acceptable and what's not. I mean, here's another bad analogy. I, I'm a golfer. I love to play golf. I'm not very good at it. I'm, golf, I'm courses with you. Are, <laughs> golf courses are full of hazards. There's sand traps and there's water and whatnot. If I'm standing on the first tee and there's a sand trap 350 yards down on the left side, that poses virtually no risk for me because I'm not going to hit it that far and I never hit it to that side. So that risk, that hazard, I can manage that. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. As uh, as these reports and, and uh, papers get published, we'll certainly follow back up on them. And uh, so thank you very much for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. Thanks so much for having me as a guest. Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio coming to you on Saga 960 AM and The Big Talker 106.7 FM. Um, I am uh, very excited um, for our next guest. He's the mayor of Brampton, Patrick Brown. Uh, mayor Brown, thank you very much for joining us on the program. My pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. So um, it, it's it's an odd moment, um, I would say, in, in Canadian uh, politics where um, I am interviewing the mayor of one of Canada's largest cities about something going on um, in a province in which he is not a mayor in. Um, but I was uh, surprised and certainly appreciative of your effort um, in regards to Quebec's Bill 21. And so I would love for you to just describe to our listeners um, your opinion of the bill in Quebec uh, and then why you've launched um, this essentially call for funding from other major cities to help um, help uh, fight this case in course in court. Sorry. So the province of Quebec has passed a bill that allows the government to discriminate based on one's faith. If you are, mm -hmm. um, if you wear any article in a faith, from a turban to a hijab to a kippah to a cross, you can be fired from your uh, employment. And so we're starting to see the consequences of that. Uh, um, a young Muslim woman was fired just a few weeks ago for wearing a hijab. Um, and I've had residents in, in Brampton who have left uh, Quebec because they have no chance to have uh, work in Quebec in their chosen profession 
due to the fact they have um, a faith which requires them to wear um, an article of faith. Um, in Canada, we've always protected religious freedom as guaranteed in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So now there's a court case challenging this bill which infringes the Canadian uh, Charter. And the consequences go well beyond Quebec. It's not just that this is blatant discrimination in Quebec. If there is a Supreme Court precedent that you can discriminate based on faith, that's a precedent that can be used elsewhere in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, a Supreme Court precedent would be uh, dangerous if we ever had a premier in another province elected on a populist wave. And don't think that's impossible. Look what happened with Trump in the United States when he tried mm -hmm. to put um, a travel ban in place that uh, targeted um, a particular uh, faith uh, in the world. And, you know, I, I think we need to step up. It's unfortunate that the government of Canada is not defending their own charter, but we're in this unusual situation where you have the prime minister saying Bill 21 is discriminatory. You've got the opposition saying Bill 21 is discriminatory. But because of votes, they have made a political calculation to stay silent in the face of this discrimination. In the last federal election, they were worried about losing seats in Quebec, and so they pledged not to interfere. Um, and we have the situation now where you've got these not-for-profit groups like the World Sikh Organization, the National Council of Canadian Muslims, raising funds largely on the backs of racialized minorities to defend our own charter. When mm -hmm. you would expect the government of Canada would defend their own document, you expect the government of Canada will say, we're going to protect freedom of religion because it is a foundational value in our country. Yep. And we're at this this point now where these minority groups um, are worried that it's not going to be a level playing field. They've raised 1.1 million, but to take it to the Supreme Court, it's going to cost about 3 million. And they don't have those resources. Uh, and the government of Canada was expected to step in. And since they haven't, I think this is an opportunity for Canada's big, diverse cities to stay to, to, to step up and say, we're going to make it a level, level playing field. We can't have religious freedom um, to be tested in the Supreme Court when it's not a level playing field. The government of Quebec has unlimited legal resources. Yeah, I think that was that was what really took it home for me when I watched your press conference was we're literally talking about, um, let's say, a, an individual or, or a, a group of private citizens who may want to challenge us. Well, they're going up against the province and the province has very deep pockets. Uh, and so how do how does a small group of people um, essentially crowdfund or, or fundraise uh, informally to to fight an opposition who has unlimited resources is quite difficult. And so um, I, I was quite pleased to see um, on behalf of Brampton, you um, lead the charge and add your name, but maybe tell our listeners some of the other cities who have um, accepted your call and have committed funds to help make this happen. Well, we've been inundated by pledges of support across uh, the country. Uh, we've um, we've heard uh, Mayor of Vancouver said Vancouver is going to contribute. Uh, mayor of Calgary, uh, Mayor of Winnipeg, um, the Mayor of Toronto, John Tory. Uh, um, we've seen council motions uh, put forward uh, from Victoria to Mississauga to uh, Durham to Peter to Peterborough to uh, Oakville to Halton Hills across the country. We're seeing communities step up and say. 
Um, we have to defend our, our Canadian mosaic. We have to defend religious freedom. And it's been a beautiful outpouring of, of support into these minority groups in Quebec that felt um, isolated, that felt that they were being abandoned, that uh, they were being discriminated, and that no one was going to stand up for them. For them, it's really been um, a, a, a very special moment to see that, you know, when you're part of the Canadian family, we stick up for one another. Yeah, yeah, I think um, going back to that press conference, religious freedom is 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 in the DNA of of what it means to be Canadian. Um, it's it's one of the among many different reasons, but one of the reasons why our country is so diverse and why people have come to Canada from all over the world um, over time. In many instances, fleeing persecution um, for uh, nothing more than. Um, their religious beliefs. And one thing I wanted your take on, because um, although as mayor, you are, are nonpartisan, um, that's one of the, uh, one of, I think, the better parts of, of uh, municipal politics. But one thing that's always struck me is where the conservative voices have been on this issue, because at least from my perspective, the conservative party, um, religious freedom has always, or, or, or it was supposed to be, their kind of bread and butter. You know, and, I, um, and so one would think that, that, that this was going to be something that they could kind of carry the banner for. And, and I'm, I'm kind of left um, disappointingly waiting for, for someone to make a very big stance here. Yeah. And, you know, I don't view this as a, a partisan issue. Um, frankly, both the, the liberals and the conservatives um, have dropped the ball. Um, on defending our Canadian charter in, in Ottawa. Um, even the NDP mm -hmm. in the last two federal elections were silent in the face of this um, discrimination. So it's disappointing that all the political parties in Canada have really, um, have really uh, dropped the ball on what is uh, an obligation not to respond to polls, but to defend a foundational value. Um, I am in uh, the nonpartisan arena now in municipal politics, but I would say, um, as someone who has served um, in uh, a partisan uh, environment, uh, both federally and, and provincially, that I think the Conservative Party um, is missing the boat on this, that religious free, the, the defense of relig mm. religious freedom should be um, something that they stand for, uh, be counted for, be measured uh, on that, uh, you know, you can always count on them to protect religious freedom. And um, I have to say the, the tepid response um, by all uh, political parties in Canada on this file has been so disappointing. We should not uh, make decisions based on uh, how it'll affect your seat count in a province when it relates to uh, what is right and wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are moments in, in political history where it, it is just, it is time to do the right thing. Um, and I, I believe... be costly at the ballot yeah, box. Yeah, and I, I believe one day you're going to see a prime minister rise in the House of Commons and apologize for this period. I think there's going to be a government apology for all those who lost their jobs due to their faith. Uh, mm -hmm. And and this is, you know, as Canada goes around the world professing religious freedom, we even had an ambassador at one point um, for religious freedom. Uh, and how do we make those principled uh, pitches around the world for religious freedom when we're allowing it to be infringed in one of our provinces? We look like hypocrites. 
Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, now, I do want to ask in regards to some of your response to the critics, because I have followed um, the response to these um, these calls for funding and the success that it's garnered. Some um, have argued that this is falling into a Quebec separatist trap or that it will fuel um, a, a debate between English Canada and French Canada and further entrench um, any separatist or nationalistic sentiments that may be there in Quebec. And I'm curious as to what your response is. I know what my response is, <laughs> but I'm, I'm interested well, to hear and, what your take is on And my is response the is, is the, the government spin doctors, and they've got high-priced PR specialists are trying to argue this is Quebec bashing. Let me be clear. I love Quebec. I have family in Quebec. I grew up visiting my aunts and uncles and cousins in, in Quebec. I spent three years studying French in, in Trarvier. I love the province, the people, the culture. But what I don't support mm -hmm. is discrimination. And this is not a criticism of Quebec. It's a criticism of a law that a partisan uh, government put into place for, um, for popularity purposes. They're responding um, to a, an issue that they thought would um, serve their political purposes. Um, I disagree with the coalition avenir. I disagree with uh, Francois mm -hmm. Legault uh, on this on this bill, uh, but I love Quebec. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and for me, it just seemed that's. And I'm sure that you've seen this online. The response from let's call them the critics always seems to go back to the political ramifications of this. No, I, I very rarely see anyone actually defend um, yeah. the bill, uh, or at least not publicly. And I think that that just goes to show you that it is, it is so hard to defend and say no. Um, a man like Jagmeet Singh, who in theory could be prime minister of this country, could not be or could not represent the crown as, as an attorney or could not be a high school teacher. Um, two jobs, obviously, he's more than qualified um, to, to be for the sole reason of the fact that he wears a turban. I, I can't find people make a serious defense of this beyond talking about the political ramifications or yeah, whether and, or not this becomes Anglo versus Franco. Yeah. You know what's sad about this is, you know, I have been talking to mayors in Quebec and one response is the premier is too popular. You know, we don't want to challenge them on this. There'll be um, you know, consequences if we do. But another response is, um, you know, it's too divisive. We should just we should just stay silent and and let the issue die. We have to live with this bill. I'm sorry. You know, how do you say to um, a young Muslim wo woman who wants to be a teacher that she can't be because of her faith? Um, because it's too divisive to bring this up. How do you tell a young Sikh man who wants to be a police officer that he can't because of his faith? Um, you know, there there are consequences to this bill, and it means you have uh, minority groups that are essentially transformed into second-class citizens in the province of Quebec. And mm. it, it, just because it, it may be a divisive issue doesn't mean we should shy away from that. That's not leadership. The leadership is not shying away from, from uh, difficult issues, is doing what is right and making sure that we don't have uh, second-class citizenship in our country where we discriminate based on faith is the right thing to do. And we all need to take that challenge up. And I'm glad that so many Canadian municipalities have stepped up to that challenge. I just wish the government of Canada would do so as well.
Yeah, yeah, you're certainly not the you're not the only person who's who's waiting on on Ottawa to say something. I mean, the way in which I've always framed this is, we've we've had we've had men in this country fight and die for in our Canadian armed services armed forces wearing a turban. Surely, if they can do that um, and make the ultimate sacrifice, they are more than qualified um, for all of the other pro uh, professions that they are now prohibited from. Um, seeking employment in, in Quebec. So, uh, Mayor Brown, it has been an absolute pleasure. Um, very refreshing um, at this moment in Canadian politics to have someone like yourself um, kind of lead the charge uh, on pushing back against this when it felt like for a moment everyone was too timid to do so. Um, and so we commend you for uh, your efforts on that front. We hope to have you back as this continues to progress uh, and develop and, and hopefully um, have you back to talk about what will be a future success in regards to um, raising money for this and, and continuing to push for religious freedom across the country. Well, thanks so much for having me on and, and all the best during the holiday season.